Welcome everyone to this session of question and responses. We've pulled out a few that seem to have relevance to most of us that are practicing. First of the questions, does it also help to breathe into tanha to mitigate its grip? Wanting, wanting, wanting is a nuisance. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah, like that's the pivot of Buddhist practice. <laughs> it only takes about 15 years. And keeps going, uh, yeah. So clearly, there are objects that we crave, which don't satisfy us. So you begin to get the message of tanha, like this is not working. You know, maybe I got the wrong objects. You try a few more things. No, it's not. It's the wrong strategy. What's happening? I want. I want happy. I want. I want to feel good. I want. I want. I want. That uh, is suffering. <laughs> That stress of reaching out is already suffering and stress, you know? So how does it undo? Well, you, partly you feel that there's a gripping that occurs. You know, tanha is the arousal of, oh, could get, could get, and then clank, you get the grip of upadana, holding on. So you feel a contraction of the heart around what you're craving. Don't necessarily notice it at first because the th you know, there's a lot of movement in that as the object changes and your, your tanha is pretty mobile, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a clench around that. And that's why, you know, you, you've got to kind of deal with it really on several levels, psychological level, this is not doing me any good, it doesn't work, right? And then maybe let's just put aside sense objects, but then craving goes to other things, craving for, you know, psychological power, uh, status, uh, security, uh, everything, you know. It's always this pull something in to, to keep me, hold, hold me up, fill me up. So, you know, wow, wow, is it so, is it so empty in here? So you start, part of the strategy is just filling yourself up with some good stuff. Metta, self-respect, breathing in and breathing out. So that helps to allay the, the clutch, the, the craving. And then the very grip itself is upadana, is, is softened through um, both through just this process of, you know, if you open up, you'll get what you want. If you open up, you'll get what you want. You'll get that nice warm flow that you thought was in that and in that and in that. You'll get it. You've got to open up. And that's a bit difficult sometimes, you know, because you had, you got knotted. Yeah. So a bit of that breathing and encouragement all, uh, helps. Mm. Breath energy, because breath energy you can't if you clutch it you've lost it. You're no longer in energetic. You've gone into a seizure. Yeah. That's why breathing is by itself. You know it's it's a powerful remedy because you can't really attend to it through grasping. You just you can't grasp water. <laughs> you know. So it tends to just go, okay, be mindful of it flowing. And that gives one a sense of it's going to keep flowing. It's never going to let you down. So if you can adjust your appetite to that level of, of energy, you know, you sense appetite. So that you begin to get sensitive enough to really get some happiness out of that. Then you've dislodged a big aspect of tanha. That's what I say in brief. Um, takes a bit of doing, but that's what I'm saying, brief.
than yourself, Willa? Yeah, very much like you, Arjun, and in the sense, really being able to really recognise the energy of it, you know, like in this quest and that kind of wanting, wanting, you know, it's a kind of, it's a movement to lean out on other something else. And so, you know, as you're saying, one of the really helpful things is to get so that we're actually able to be self-supporting. Well, there isn't a self, but energetically we're here. It's not like we're some kind of starving thing needing filling up. And sometimes, particularly at the beginning of the time of practice, I'm really aware of the different kinds of food the mind the system seeks. You know? So clearly there's the hunger of physical food, but there's this tremendous hunger for sense contact that needs to be understood and the kind of hunger to do. And for me, sometimes it's just recognising that's enough to let it relax. You know, there's been a, you know, here there's much to do, you know, gardens, stuff, things coming down the line, but to, to keep even in that the doing, to be not doing it from that kind of anxiety that Tonha can have. So as we live our lives, to be keeping relaxing. Yeah, there's this to do, that to do, because here we are alive with bodies, yeah, and so there are certain responsibilities with that, but not to be living from the energetic, of the kind of poverty energetic. Yeah, actually this moment is enough. I do what I can and take nourishment from that simplicity of focus in a way. We live generously, we live well, and we just let some of these energies quieten. Because the tricky thing is if you feed them, they just start getting more and more unwieldy. So you go, oh. And many of us have to spend a lot of, you know, with work, time on screen, time answering things. So the whole mind is used to having to cope with a lot of sensory input and what's it like when you sit down and all that, that external quietness. There can still be that movement to lean out. And we just are really compassionate and kind with that. Oh, you can just rest here. Just rest back, let the whole thing go. And so that's why regular practice becomes so important, that we actually are really constantly tuning to what it feels like to come out of that agitation. Mm. Otherwise, we can rest into. Yeah, something good. Absolutely. So that's what I would say. So, you know, we can do it on the cushion, but it's actually it's about really noticing this energy in our life and not believing it. Mm. Actually, here we are. Alive, blessed, and to really connect with that. Of course, it's really where the work is in practice to understand this this kind of energy that comes from delusion of separation. There is anything out there I can get. Wow. So to see that we can keep coming back to it in terms of practice of the retreat. It's so fundamental, this 
this dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's also important to not feel guilty about it, like, you know, you're a nasty, grubby person because you've got some tantra, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> we've got a whole kind of guilt thing ready to fire on anything, anything that seems less than utter spotless purity. We run a guilt trip on it, and it just doesn't do any good. It's just been actually pragmatic that's the way it is so like let's get onto it let's stop banging about you know wailing about ourselves and beating ourselves up around it you know and get on with it and i think there's also i think there's room for transformation from this craving into actually chandas like a certain energy that motivation you know like well turn it from pulling stuff in so maybe I could put some stuff out, you know, so you're still using that energy, but you're turning it the other way, you know, sending out things. You know. you know, if the mind still isn't able to kind of get really restful, then you try to use your energy in a way whereby it's, it's skillful motivation to do and to serve and to help rather than to suck things in. Yeah, absolutely. And it feels almost like, it's a stage in our development as human beings, isn't it, that there's a time when we're taking in nourishment and then there's a time when actually the gesture is one of, of compassion, bestowing, taking care of. And it has a very different energy, doesn't it? So, yeah. So maybe we move on and... The next question that we thought to attend to is really about states of calm and how to navigate them. Yeah. You know, are they helpful or unhelpful? And so this person says often when they're in seated meditation, they experience a state of blankness and not knowing. They're not asleep, but they're unaware of what has happened. So they're, you know, in a way, they're, they're quite um, mindful in a way of the relationship to it in the sense it's not clinging or desire, asking do they need to be careful around that. So maybe I'll just say a few things and then you can pick up. But, you know, if you look in the Buddha's teaching, the primary element that's very vital is mindfulness, yeah? You know, if we look at the Indriya, Mindfulness is a balancing factor you know, for faith, energy, mindfulness, samadhi, and investigation. Yeah? So what I am always attentive to in my meditation is really checking what factors are present. And this isn't a great mental process, but just recognising whether mindfulness is present or not. Yeah? And if mindfulness is not present... Might as well be mowing the lawn, yeah, in a way. So what I would say about that state of calm, it's kind of wrong samadhi in a way if it doesn't have mindfulness within it. And it can feel incredibly pleasant, but it's a lot more powerful if you actually have these other factors present. You have right energy, right effort, you have right mindfulness, you have right samadhi, you have investigation or wisdom present, yeah? So that's what I would be checking. And in terms of my 
meditation test my life, this is one of the things I'm checking. Are the five Indriya fully present? Because they are the thing that when they come together, really they release the mind out of craving, out of ignorance. Yeah. And we can kind of get a, addiction is a strong word, but these kind of numbed out states can feel so comfortable as opposed to the kind of frenetic experience we might be living in. But what I would suggest is to get other ways of, of really supporting the energetic of the body, bringing calm, bringing well-being, that are more, more nourishing. You know, so rather than switching off, switching on, yeah, you can really turning on the energy of faith, you know, the sense that it's really worth attending to what is here. And, you know, I often think, you know, because one of the monks at Chichest used to talk about it a lot, that Ajahn Chah said to him, do you want to be like a chicken? You know, and chickens can sit a very long time. No, no, I'm not going to sit like a chicken. There's, there's going to be these factors present. Because yeah. it can look really good. And it can, on some level, it can kind of feel good. But it isn't waking us up, and we don't have time to muck around. So that would be my response. You know, time's too precious. So, Ajahn, your, your sense of this. Right, thank you, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know the story of this you know, how this person's practicing, really. Yeah. You see, calming the mind is really rather later in practice. You know, the first thing we do is we soothe the body. So you're always coming through this body experience to keep the chitta tethered to the body so it doesn't just drift off because there's a lot of places the chitta can go your awareness okay chitta your heart your awareness your your center of mentality where that can go lots and lots of places really far out places fascinating places grim places the cosmology is vast and the buddha and the forest agile is particularly very firm on not letting their disciples just bliss out into calm Sometimes ruthlessly so, you know, getting to get back into the body because something wants to get out of this this mass, this heaviness of it all. But if you look in the Anapanasati Sutta, you know, saying get into your body, then really know the body, the body energy, and soothe pasati. So you're beginning to work into the, the tissues, you know. So really, your first thing is is embodying into a very full and complete and happy body and then what occurs is not mental calm but rapture right so it's an energized state you know the mind is oh starts to be energized and then then you're managing that so then you get ease right so that's quite a way down the, the track really so you've come through the body and you've got the brightening of the mind as it comes out of the hindrances. It's brightened, you know, 
and then it's steadied in that brightened state and then the tr training goes on thoroughly gladdening the heart you know you know thoroughly gladdening the heart the jitta so there's there's some juice there and um, you know I'm not, I don't want to comment take this personally friend whoever's asking the question I don't know your practice but uh, exactly where it's I maybe I don't want to be sense of judging you but there are people and many of us like we just want to be calm and quiet it's totally understandable life's rough and the opportunity to get some calm is totally understandable and you know fine but it's it's a little bit more subtle than that could be a little more patient than that you know because otherwise you get into this where there's no wisdom can arise no skill arises you just go into something but there's no skill there's no ability to 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 work with it to, to refine it to steady it to investigate it your, your wisdom faculties have just gone to sleep it's called stump samadhi they call it forest tradition <laughs> so <laughs> You know, when their disciples would go off and they would say, okay, you just got to do walking meditation and contemplate hair of the head, hair of the body, bones, nails, teeth, skin. <laughs> you know, get, get there. I mean, it's that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, I know myself, in, in certainly in living in monasteries, it's, it's calm thinkers. You know. There's a kind of certain lack of lack of precision, lack of real finesse in it. So be careful of that. Withdraw from that. You're in that. Withdraw from it, and just start. You know, do you have a body? Let's just feel the feet, the knees. You know, it sounds stupid, but get there and then begin to generate goodwill and directing breathing energy into the, into the physicality of the body. And, and you know then then you, you've withdrawn but you're now you're on the right track and that track will take you to a calm in a more fruitful way in a way that you, you bring your skills with you thank you yes it really is a case of bringing the skills we've cultivated mm -hmm. into the meditation isn't it yeah, yeah. so this one Ajahn can you run through a scenario on treating a cancer, recent cancer diagnosis with love and how that might work? So many approaches to cancer set it up as a war. I do not wish to do that. Indeed. Fighting cancer. <laughs> yeah. Mm. A friend of mine who had terminal cancer, you know, he's a... Uh, so he passed away of it and he, and he used to talk about it and he said he didn't want to miss the occasion that the cancer had given him he wanted to show up for the occasion that cancer had given him yeah, and his was terminal he knew it was terminal and he said yeah I want to show up for that and I said if I hadn't trained in this training I wouldn't have been able to show up for it I always want to get rid of it somehow and he showed up with it which meant you know my life is fragile, my life is precious, I am grateful. Uh, my life has been a gift, I am grateful. Um, you know, we have to go sometime. 
let go of the regrets, so forth. So you know, showing up and using cancer as a as a teacher, as something to to reflect from. Now, this person is asking the question, you know, uh, I hope it's not terminal, but of course life is terminal. Mm. Um, so, mm, you know, uh, not getting that sense of fear and closure, and as if your body is body is killing you. You mustn't be at war with your body. And have that feeling of the body is somehow let you down. Or why is this happening to me? I don't deserve it. I shouldn't be this way. You know, those negative energies can't do your body any good. Certainly can't do your heart any good. And perhaps this is an occasion for generosity and gladness towards the body. And, uh, you know, maybe that is helpful for the physical condition. But we know the peace we can save, which is the heart. That's the thing we can save. So this must be our priority. Okay. Yes, yes, the body goes its own way, doesn't it? And we take what care we can, you know, and there needs to be tenderness in that, but it really is the heart we're working with and looking after. And I've, you know, in my work in palliative care, I've seen a lot of people, you know, with diagnoses of different kinds, and in most cases they're terminal. And what was so um, un, undeniable was the power of love, yeah, and the great mystery of love. So one of the things I would say is that part of the work is to let people in. We're often in our culture trained to be quite separated off on some level. And one of the, I guess, lessons of these kind of experiences is to let the love in and to really do the work of letting go of anything that obstructs that. So we're really working here and we know that it really is an occasion, in fact, a call to be with what is most important, most precious. And the most precious thing is our love and our connection. You know, working with families, working with people, what I really see is that whether someone lives, dies, whatever happens, that that coming into compassionate relationship is so powerful and transformative here, there, across the whole experience of life. So that would be my thing, is make sure you're letting others, letting life, letting the natural world in as a support and part of you actually blessing it, yeah. Our life is a gift, yeah, and we we keep, in a way, giving our life energy until we don't have it. Yeah. But there is, I mean, in the workplace I was in, the team were really, you know, really um, disturbed by this, this war metaphor that so often 
used and obituaries, you know, they lost their fight with cancer or whatever. And it's just crazy. So it's good you can recognise that that the kind of unhelpfulness of that kind of metaphor and way of relating. There is enough war out there already, I would say. So none of us wants to add to it, do we? So you know, may you be well and may you know this diagnosis be something that just gives it an occasion to really strengthen your alignment with what is important and then that you can live from that place for a very long time. Maybe we you know, will keep with the flow of the questions. You know, some of your questions are really poignant. You know, so thank you for inviting us into your experiences. The next one is about how to develop the middle path of observing the mind between suppressing thoughts, memories, and reacting to them during meditation and daily life. So this question about how to work with thinking the thoughts. If you want to pick up on that, Ajahn. Uh, the relationship to to thinking as you meditate. And, you know, first of all, we very much are on the thinking vehicle as our main leader in our life, as our guide. And that's very much their education, isn't it? Get your thinking straight and you know, read, write, get brilliant, get good. Effective. That's how you earn a living. So you're very much identified with that uh, that that energy and that uh, that intelligence. And it is it's in, it's an intelligence. It is an energy. But of course, it doesn't take you to to um, you know anywhere restful or stable or comfortable. It can be because it, it's just a, it's just an organizer. It's not a satisfier. You know, it's not, it's not a nourisher, it's an organiser. It's the idea, is it organises you to get to the place of nourishment. By itself, it can't nourish, it's not its function. So we want to, ideally, you know, take it to where we can get the nourishment and say, thank you, thought, that's enough, I'm, I'm fine now, you can go and take a break. But of course, it gets locked in. So, well, you know, we, you're only suppressing thought because you, get, you, you can use it. So you generally use it for recollection, for example. So which is steady, slow thought, you know, from nature to age. How's that? The Buddha is my guide. How's that? Uh, be well. How's that? Using it to take you to a place of meaning that you can linger in, lingering in, lingering in. Thought doesn't linger take it to a place and try to linger in it you know. and if that's difficult with mental stuff then take it into your breathing so here, here's a breathing tracking long out breath I can think long out breath in about a quarter of a second long out breath <laughs> done, next <laughs> but to actually long out breath, out breath out breath, out breath out breath, out breath, out breath, out breath. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the breath says, okay, thank you, thinking, I've got it. I can do it myself now. 
and you're thinking it just gets lighter and lighter and lighter because you're replacing the guiding vehicle of thought with the guiding vehicle of the breath. The breath is giving you a, a, a line to follow, get you something to hold on to, and it's taking you to a place of where, oh yes, that's some comfort there, there's a release there at the end of the out-breath, there's some nice fresh energy coming in the end, but then thought, well you don't need that, maybe just a little bit to keep me on track. So that's that's the fundamental strategy of mindfulness of breathing. And, you know, he starts trying to suppress thought, and it's just uh, chasing, it's like a dog chasing his tail. You just go round and round in circles. Um, it's just, you know, you give the dog a bone, and it will, it will quite it will settle down. You know, so you give it something to get onto, and, um, you know, and then you, you, you haven't killed a dog, but you've trained it. And you say, okay, now, doggy, let's do some investigation. How's this? How's that? And you've trained it. You you haven't got an antagonistic relationship to it. Say, so, okay, what? How's that feel? Hmm. How's that feel? Hmm. What's happening with that mood? Uh-huh. So you haven't, you know, throttled it, but you've mollified it and trained it, and you can turn it, and then it becomes a vehicle for insight. Insight develops out of the trained thoughtfulness. To be able to investigate how's this, how's this, this cause suffering and stress or not? Hmm. Is it skillful or unskillful? Hmm. What's that feel like? Hmm. Yeah, what's that mood feel like? Hmm. Right that, yeah. So this is trained thoughtfulness, where the actual verbal process aspect of thought is quite minimal. But the listening aspect of it increases. So. Itaka is the, is, the, is the verbal aspect, like the breath. And then vichara is the, uh-huh, how's that? So to, to you know, drain thought, you use the vitaka to point to something, and then vichara takes it, and how's that, how's that, how's that, how's that? You know, there's a finger, 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 how's that? Mm, soft, warm, spongy, tickly. Yeah. So you you develop the vichara. So you lessen the vitaka. You lessen the, the the verbal naming, and you increase the listening. So you're still thoughtful in that considering taking it in way, and you're less. And the more you take it in you get deep meaning and the less you have to keep oh, another thought, another thought, another thought, another thought what about this, what about that Just take it in, digest it this is the way you train train your thinking mind that's my recommendation so it's neither suppression it's not certainly not suppression it's um, restraint and training it's required and you, and, you, and you think, oh, and then of course your awareness steps back from that. Uh-huh. Mm. Supervising, supervising the thought process. It's not a person. It's just a, it's just a mechanism that can be used. Any thoughts, Willa? <laughs> yeah, because this is often where yeah you could know, be working until 
really the energy settle. You know, people can end up just in the kind of in the momentum of thinking. So, so it's to use that capacity we have to think, to as you say, to actually be able to point at what is helpful and develop the receptivity of the mind. Ooh, thinking, you know, I often come into the kind of ways the Buddha talked about working with it because, of course, they were thinking then as well. And he had a beautiful sutta, the Vitaka Santana Sutta in the Majjima, which talks about the five ways, yeah? And one is simply, in a way, letting the attention shift to what is more helpful. So it's not suppressing, it's recognising, oh, this is not... This is not helpful. Let's use something helpful. And as Ajahn Satito is saying, the breath, body, these these are actually things that bring nourishment and balance, and they're helpful to redirect the attention to actually into what's here rather than this kind of spin. The other aspect of that, you know, which Ajahn was saying, but I point maybe in a slightly different way, is that... Um, sense of there's the thinking but it's it's to come under it and to really come into the energetic out of which thought is arising yeah and I find that for me immediately boom it's gone so it's not suppression it's this opening but opening at a more deep level and as I was saying Yesterday, you know, my energetic is such that, you know, worry, that little tremble will often be underneath any kind of thought. And so come under, there's that energetic. And I know, oh, there's still this kind of habit of worry that needs um, needs attention, needs a breath coming through it. And it's lucky to have that as a the primary tremble in a way because the medicine for that is definitely the breath. You know, the kind of soothing, relaxing, the well-being it generates, sense of, hey, it's okay, that the breath comes with it, you know, love, life, okayness, yeah? So that's what I would say is when we come under, we know what medicine is needed. In a way, thought's just a fluff coming out of deeper places. Okay. Just to, um, excuse me, Willa, there yeah. was a request that these citations be mentioned. So that would be Tuck of Santana Sutta, which Willa mentioned is Majjhima Nikaya 20, if you want to look it up. And if you're in that area, look at Majjhima Nikaya 19, the two kinds of thought, the twofold thought. So it's kind of a classical. Um, the Vitaka Santana Sutta is very interesting. It gives you five distinct different methods of, of reigning in thought with incredible metaphors yeah, yeah. that really make i don't know make sense here and you go oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. thank you i i find it really helpful to take myself back to some of the suitors themselves you know, partly because it's so beautiful mm-hmm. yeah and that can also be lovely sit here and you're connected really with the word of the buddha the beauty, the fact that, you know, he offered even ways of working with thought out of compassion, yeah. 
once again, we're not on self-improvement plan. We're just trying to allay the dukkha here. Just to add a footnote, it's so significant because the way you, your thought operates is often the way you speak. Yeah, so even training oneself to speak, you know, like, uh-huh, you know, rabbit with this sense of listening to yourself, is that right? And, uh, so the, the, it's, a, it's a whole cultivation, the verbalizing process. Mm, thank you. After more than 20 years of practice, I'm encountering doubt for the first time. I sometimes feel disorientated, as if I've forgotten how practice worked all those years, those early years. My response is just to keep practicing and trust in the process, but I would welcome any perspective you can offer. <laughs> well, doubt is a very powerful hindrance, and it, it uh, it's a very it's a very um, disorientation exactly it's not about lack an absence of thought it's sometimes your thoughts can't find a place to settle down it's a loss of orientation as the person mentions where's the ground um, and it's uh, it's a dangerous one because it can corrode one's faith one sense of purpose and aspiration and you know confidence uh, and I don't know where you've been for 20 years, uh, friend, but um, most of us start with some, okay, do this, do that, do this, do that. You know, if you practice, do this, do that, do this, do that. You know, you're very much, this is what I was doing, you know, do this, do that. Similar technique, focus on this, focus on that. And then you, you're quite like that. And I call it the, the practice of lines. It's very linear. You've got a definite sense of structures you go through. It's quite you know, rationally conceivable. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Focus on this, pay attention to that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's that's good. Uh, certainly you get some attentiveness and you begin to weed out the impurities. But there's a point in which the jitta almost begins to... Mm, see the drawbacks in that kind of clarity because actually life isn't lines it's not that clear life is flushes and movements and energies and suggestivities and passions and confusions these are not they're not linear they're not they don't occur in clock time they're not they're not things you do they're things that happen and the more that we cultivate then our doing this in practice is partly it's the apprenticeship to build up the skills to operate beyond the doing you know operate when we're just being you know so, so this is what it feels like to be ill what's the practice there's no system in practicing of being ill illness is a practice you've got to meet the resistance and the confusion and the feeling of despond you know. there's no one two three um, no technique in it you know here's the feeling of bereavement you know 
there's no technique for that you're just sort of open to it uh, and what are you supposed to do well what you're supposed to do is feel the feeling as a feeling you know and not proliferate around it and be mindful of it so life itself is increasingly less linear and structured and more questions of almost colors and tones and pressures and pushes and energies and emotional surges and emotional barrenness what, what's it like when you there's emotional barrenness you think, where do i go i just feel worn out nothing happens well yeah uh, this is the time when we we pause and we take refuge and we have to almost wait in our barrenness and begin to develop let that teach us compassion seems to me humbly personally speaking yeah i no longer have a practice it's just uh, in a way relating to what arises yeah it's relating to what arises and letting it teach me to be more modest or more uh, not to jump to conclusions or not to take over something or not to you know zone out of experience <laughs> you know go fuzzy on experience to be present with the experience and let it teach me you know it becomes something that is teaching me to be you know steady patient and so on so that you know and naturally that does me yeah of course i'd sit still you know, of course i breathing in and out you know that's my that's my entry channel into into the depth zone and then it's just oh this is tiredness this is fatigue this is a sense of you know anxiety okay how's the how what what what's the way of relating to that where's the meeting place with that okay it's like this now so you know, it's like you're learning to, to play the violin and then finally the music comes and it wasn't the tune you wanted to play. <laughs> so it is disorienting. Get used to it. Because, <laughs> you know, get used to disorientation because that's where we live. <laughs> and that, that's the... Um, <laughs> you know, I, sorry, I don't want to be kind of flippant, but <laughs> I live in disorientation, and uh, I'm not proud of it. <laughs> but I'm trying to, you know, meet what arises. Even I sit and meditate, and then, and then stuff begins to let me go. It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> It doesn't implode it starts to say okay you know, you're not fighting you're not struggling you're not proliferating we'll let you go then you move to the next thing <laughs> and I, I have no doubt in that because doubt arises from thinking you know when you're trying to measure things as a right you, know, you can measure things as this or that or this or that but some things you can't really measure like that so you don't have doubt because it's, it's what happens. There's no doubt about that. And it's it's uh, just looking it straight in the eye. 
instead of well, where's, where's the clarity where's the clarity look at it straight in the eye look at the fog it's from the heart and the resistance to it and it begins to let you through it begins to let you through once you've once you've met it that's my biography <laughs> It's a kind of biography, isn't it, Bunty? Because it's something that, in a way, practices these processes in it. And there are times when, yeah, we really know what we're doing, and other times when, actually, yeah. And one thing, you know, that reading it, hearing it really made me think of, you know, even when we take the refuges, um, take the precepts, we affirm the refuges in a way. You could say the sense of taking refuge is the is the ground out of which practice can arise. Yeah, so really coming back to that sense of there is this capacity to awaken. You know, there is this practice path. You know, there is this teaching. There is this community. Yeah, and in a way, letting these perceptions be um, washed through. The body and mind, yeah. You know, I think in terms of medicines myself, and to use the this kind of fundamental ground that we all share as a medicine. And I was thinking, hmm, after 20 years, now what's been happening? And here we are, apart from in New Zealand, most you know, most of you have been in your separate little boxes. We've had the great good fortune of being able to stay present, physically present with each other. And I was thinking, what's it like when you're no longer in the animal body resonance of other people who are practising? Yeah. Because there's something really powerful, as you know, about sitting with other people. So I wonder if, you know, this sense of the shift to doubt is something too about that, a loss of connection with the kind of great vehicle in which you sit of all of us, yeah, over time and space. And so, you know, it may be about also really making that feel very real and present, yeah. So once again, this refuge and community of practice and your own capacity to awaken. Before Ajahn Sitchito and I met, we met briefly just before this, just to see where things are up to. And we were kind of laughing about what monasteries allow in terms of doubt, yeah? And because, you know, you're in a simple space, natural space, certainly at Chitters, there's a lot of disintegration you can allow, you know? You just know you have to put your sitting cloth down, you have to do this, you have to do that. And there's some great benefit in allowing times where things are so simple that you can let the kind of um, unwinding happen. As Ajahn Setito says, coming out of the kind of lines of practice and let something else emerge that is really um, is unshakable in its determination and recognition that we just need to meet what is here. This is all we're doing, yeah? And it doesn't have to look any kind of way at all. 
So maybe having something that a place, a time where there's that that opportunity to really just relax into the natural world, into simplicity, and let something just realign itself a little. Mm. It seems to be part of the movement of practice, yeah? This movement out of lines, out of form. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kiss the frog of our chaos. It begins to, you manage to kiss that frog, it sort of begins to open up. We need to acknowledge now we are, we're not knowable. We're not linear creatures. It's, it's, uh, it's mystery and, and it frightens you sometimes. But if you embrace it, it says, okay, you've seen something, you can move through and you move through lighter. Don't carry so much hardware of practice in your head. Yeah. yeah, all those notions about what it's supposed to look like start to soften. Because yeah. certainly they can bring up the doubt of, am I doing it right? You know, is this working? Oh, yeah. let that soften. So we've got five minutes, maybe big questions here, so maybe we can pick up a big question Likely, yeah. Um, when I feel unhappiness in my heart, my mind says I don't like this feeling, I want happiness. I stayed with unhappiness and tried to understand the thought, desire, attachment behind my feeling, but I couldn't. It was a feeling of sadness. I accepted it knowing it is comma. My mind is always looking for a way to change, a technique to have happy feelings running th- through my body. I accept the sadness, bottled sadness, and bottled up frustration. Is this approach the Dhamma approach for a seeker of liberation to know the truth? Is this correct? We maybe a brief comment from me. It kind of resonated with something that um, an experience I had ages back, long before I when I was still practicing lay practice here with the monastery here before you know Thailand and near England or whatever and I had this experience of where it was clear I'd asked this question that was about wanting happiness yeah and then the response was the Buddha will teach you about suffering and then then there was this sense that there was all this suffering and the movement to pick it up and actually taste it to be present to it, the mind just went into bliss, yeah? And which, you know, was really sustained. And what it really left me with is we don't have to be frightened, you know? Our work is actually to meet dukkha, to meet unhappiness. And that very meeting, coming out of running, coming out of stress, we're coming into the Four Noble Truths and into the release out of Dukkha. So, you know, it's lovely to hear your your movement to really want to meet what is happening. And, and it's about us, in a way, 
getting enough strength of heart to actually be just fully present with what is here. No panicking, no wanting it otherwise. You know, this is this is the path, isn't it? So acceptance, I would just make sure in that that it wasn't a kind of had no resignation in it, no negativity in it, no oh you know, a kind of just have to put up with it. Rather that there's a sense of the heart being fully willing. Once again, the qualities of love is essential. We really love what is here. Whatever it is, whatever form it's taken. So brief little answer there. Anything from your part, Ajahn? Well, it's, uh, you know, happiness is like love. It's a word in which many things can be packed into that. Um, sometimes the Buddha says, I teach pleasure. You know, I teach the pleasure of, of renunciation, uh, pleasure of uh, freedom from guilt. Um, so, yes, there's a kind of happiness, which is the happiness of, of relief from the pressure of um, grasping and uh, the corruptions uh, that's a, that's a happiness that comes through doing something through letting go of something it's called a higher happiness so the line is you let go of a lower happiness for a higher happiness but you don't know the higher happiness is there because <laughs> that's not letting go it's <laughs> it's trading <laughs> so if you let go you mean okay i let go of that and, and oh I feel better. That's interesting. It's a different coming from a different place, you know. And so, when one feels this unhappiness, or however that is for you, I, I don't know really. But I can imagine if I listen to that, I can imagine myself, oh, you know, just unhappy person sitting there, you know, and um, you know, looking at that, or guarding that uh, with a with a big heart. In the sense of, yeah, you know, I'm not saying you're, you know, you're silly for wanting happiness, but uh, unhappiness actually it teaches you quite a bit. You know, the, the kind of ordinary happiness isn't doesn't go very far. It's much better to have patience. Patience is much better long-term fuel than ordinary happiness. Ordinary happiness is pretty lightweight. Patience is much takes you much further. Uh, resilience takes you much further. Um, giving happiness to others it makes you much further than happiness for yourself. You know, it's just just being pragmatic. It's the bet it does. You know, giving happiness to others or trying to do that gives you much better results and much better rewards than, you know, that kind of self-cherishing, that's sort of happiness. Um, so, yeah, when we find it, it's, uh, it's understandable. You know, we want happiness. But the undeveloped citta, you know, I don't know where you're at, friend, but, you know, we, we start undeveloped, obviously, Undeveloped chitta doesn't really understand 
this happiness which is big and peaceful and it's better than this happiness which is has to be fabricated and held on to and often making that change is a little bit tricky a little bit a little bit edgy you know <laughs> to 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 face up to the, the feeling of starvation and deprivation and not getting what I want. Be patient. Be patient. You're still breathing. Be patient. You're still breathing. Chittable. Oh, yeah, that's big, bigger. Bigger than that. And then eventually that, that bigness feels pretty supportive and you start to feel happy through that. That's right view, coming to the bigness. Okay, so huh, that's kind of what I, I'm saying, and maybe some of that resonates. And you know, Willa said perfect sense too. So between us, yeah, we've given what we can this time. So thank you all, and thank you all for your questions and presenting yourselves. Uh, you know. You know, being courageous and presenting yourselves in your in your depth, in your intimacies. And it's lovely to be in dialogue with people who are showing up to tell the truth. Tell the truth. Wonderful. It's an honour to be in dialogue with people who are telling the truth. Yeah. Keeps this retreat very much alive. I appreciate it. So thank you. And thank you, Willa, for stewarding this, because uh, this time and up of Frankly, this old, this old body, this old brain is a little bit fagged. So you know, <laughs> I really help somebody can just take my hand and lead me to the next question. <laughs> well, that's why it's a tag team. My waking up to my morning, and you're at the end of your day, so. <laughs> Yeah, and I echo appreciation for the questions coming through. In a way, it helps certainly keep me orientated to you know, what may be helpful. So let us leave some of you to go to bed and other of us you know, to get ready for the day. So, Okay. That's it for me. Take care.